Hey, it's Erica. I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to Global News What Happened To ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's this city I want to tell you about, one that was the ideal picture of opportunity in American manufacturing. As you drive into its downtown, you go under a wrought iron archway, several meters high with the words Vehicle City in white lettering as its crown. A large river cuts through the city center with paved sidewalks and areas with lush green trees in the summer that turn vibrant orange and red in the fall. It's a place where you can walk alongside the water or maybe stop for a picnic in the shade. Wherever you look, you can certainly find the city's beauty, but the real treasure lies with its people. In its history, this city has been through a lot. And in 2014, a crisis centered around the river that runs through it. One that made many sick and forced residents to come together, stand up, speak out, and seek accountability from those in charge. I'm journalist Erica Vela. And over the years, I've thought about this city in the Great Lakes region, its people, and how this scandal changed the world's perception of them. This is Global News What Happened to the Flint, Michigan Water Crisis. I wanted to learn more about this city's history. But when I typed into Google, Flint, Michigan. One of the very top results reads Flint Water Crisis. This city and its name have become synonymous with the water crisis that started seven years ago. There was little mention that Flint was once a bustling city, a place where people came to seek out opportunity. And a lot of that centered around the city's auto industry. You see, Flint was the birthplace of General Motors in 1908. GM quickly became one of the leading car manufacturers in the world. And all eyes were on the city that started it all. It looks like an ordinary day in the USA. But in the city of Flint, Michigan, all is excitement. Even the small fry are buzzing. Yvonne Lewis lives in Flint. She's originally from Saginaw, Michigan, but moved to the Vehicle City in 1976. So this was where my husband grew up and was raised. And so, um, of course, he was working here and I followed him to Flint. (laughs) Yvonne was no stranger to the lifeblood of the city. In fact, before she moved to Flint, she worked for GM as a senior in high school and worked her way into becoming a full-time salaried employee by the time she graduated college. And so I was able to transfer here to Flint and saw all, you know, there are eight plants here in Flint. Uh, During that time, there were about 80,000 employees that worked at those facilities. And then the additional individuals who worked in the community and in those related industries. But if you can think about all of that opportunity for employment, it was Flint is often not credited for being 
the birthplace of the middle class and where you could see people and I, and I experienced this even in high school, someone walking out of high school, walking into General Motors facility and making extraordinary money. Good thing and sometimes a bad thing because people didn't feel like they needed a higher education because they could just go to work and work with their hands. Flint became a real home for Yvonne, the place where she would raise her children and have her most cherished memories. And there were often simple activities with her kids. We have a Flint River trail and I could take them for walks along the side of the river that was paved. You could go for a bike ride. There, because of the schools in our community, our children could go to the schools and play on the playground. And, 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 it, and it was just wonderful. I didn't, in, in their younger years, I didn't worry about them, you know, taking a bike ride down the street and coming back. But as the years went by, life in Flint began to change. Yvonne said in the 1980s, a lot of work processes at the GM plants became automated. So we learned so much in those years about how the dynamics of a community shifts when the economic situations of that community shifts as well, how it impacts the overall health and well-being and really the life of a community. Because where things were hustling and bustling now, there were, there were vacant stores, vacant lots. And even for our General Motors property, when you recognize that there was miles of property that was no longer being used, then you find vacancies that affect the overall look of a community as well. General Motors downsized. Tens of thousands of people were laid off or relocated. According to the U.S. State Census Bureau, Flint's population was just over 190,000 in 1970. By 1980, the population declined by over 17% to 159,000 people. The economic impact of GM's closures was first brought to the world's attention in the 1989 documentary, Roger and Me, directed by Michael Moore. Today, the population of Flint is less than 100,000 people. Because of this drastic economic shift, the city began accumulating debt. And by 2011, an audit revealed the city had projected a $25 million deficit. The city had also privatized services and cut public revenue streams. There was also the cancellation of revenue sharing, a state program between Michigan cities that was aimed to bolster and reinvest in post-industrial cities, places like Saginaw, Detroit, Flint, and Pontiac. In an attempt to fix the financial ruin the city faced, Michigan's governor at the time, Rick Snyder, passed emergency manager legislation. Before I go any further, I need to explain what that means. For that, a bit of context. In 2011, many municipalities in Michigan were facing financial hardships similar to Flint. The emergency manager law basically gives the state the power to intervene or make decisions that local governments would normally be responsible for. The state does this by assigning an emergency manager, a person who oversees the municipality and has the ability to supersede any decisions being made at the local level, stripping local officials of their decision-making authority. The emergency manager reports directly to the governor. People like Yvonne Lewis were not happy about it. 
the actual emergency manager law happened prior to the Flint crisis. That was an assault, and I'll say it this way, it was an assault on democracy because the emergency manager law was a ballot initiative. It was a ballot issue. And it was overturned by the entire state, not just Flint. It was not approved by the voters of this state. You know, this predated the water crisis. And we had many community members who were standing up and saying, this is an assault on our democracy. Because what it did then was it allowed the governor to appoint an emergency manager to communities that were in financial disarray, I'll call it. They were in financial challenges, not able to balance their budget. And then that person would go into the community. It would strip the powers of the council. It would strip the powers of the mayor. And they were all then amenable to the emergency manager who ultimately reported to the governor. Now, mind you, in the city of in the state of Michigan, those communities that were appointed emergency managers were predominantly minority communities, predominantly African American. However, there were communities that were not predominantly African American that also had financial issues, but they were not assigned an emergency manager. So when you talk about the question of racism, equity, is that appropriate? So it raises the flag, right? It raises the question as to why particularly African-American communities, were identified as having the need for an emergency manager. As Yvonne said, in 2011, Flint, Benton Harbor, Pontiac, E-Course, along with Detroit's public school district, all had an emergency manager. And in each of those cities, the majority of people are African-American or Black. Two years later, in 2013, in an effort to get a handle on the debt, Flint officials were looking for a less expensive water source. While under the oversight of the emergency manager, a decision to switch Flint's water source from the Detroit Water and Sewerage Department to the Karagandi Water Authority was made. The issue was the Karagandi Water Authority was in the process of building a pipeline from Lake Huron, and it wasn't completed yet. It was decided to temporarily use water from the Flint River instead of continuing to get water from Detroit until the pipeline was done. Yvonne said when this was discussed at council, residents were worried about the switch. There have been stories about the Flint River for many years as not a place that you want to drink the water from, even though you might want to look at it and put your toes in it. We visited the council meetings when the conversations were, ha- were talking about even building the Karagande pipeline and what that would mean to our community. Um, again, we're on high alert because the information that was being shared wasn't quite clear. And then when we had the emergency manager come in and say this was a decision that was going to be made, and some of us had individuals that we knew that worked at the water plant, and we understood that the the Flint River, if necessary, was to be a secondary water source for a short time. But then we make that switch and we're told we're going to be on this Flint River for a while without any real clear understanding of how long that would be and not knowing if the water was treated appropriately. On April 25th, 2014, the switch officially happened. Residents would now be getting their water from the Flint River, Video from MLive shows the mayor of Flint with the emergency manager and others making the switch. Three, two, 
But almost immediately, Yvonne said she noticed a difference. The water looked funny. The water smelled funny when it started coming out of the tap, when that switch happened. It, 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 almost immediately, you could see, feel, and taste the difference. Another important thing that I notice is when you're washing your clothes, you know, sometimes you don't take them out of the washer right away. Uh-huh. But then they mold it so quickly. Something's wrong with that. It was it there were there were immediate differences in the interaction with the water coming out of the tap than previous to the water switch. And she wasn't the only person who saw a change in the quality of water. About a month or so after the switch, you started seeing people, um, you know, on, on social media posting pictures of orange and brown and yellow water. And I'm like, oh my God, that's terrible. That's Melissa Mays. She's a mother of three. And over her life, she's had various careers. In 2014, I'm a metal music promoter. I'm a tattooed mother and I, I tour. I didn't have a big, like, activist network. It was mostly musicians and everything like that. She also lives in Flint, Michigan. When she started seeing posts on social media, she became curious. So I clicked on the news and they're just like, hey, you know, river water is just harder than lake water, so it's no big deal. You know, give us time. Please be patient. We're working this out. But for the people you're seeing with discolored water, it's because they have old pipes in their house. It's not because of the river. And I'm like, oh. Okay, well, you know, that makes sense. And this is, you know, the State Department of Environmental Quality, and this is the city, the water treatment plant, you know, the director of public works saying this. And I'm like, well, they obviously know more than me. You know, what do I know? She says she didn't have the colored water that others had. So, you know, I'm like, wow, that's terrible for them that they're going to have to pay to have their, you know, inside plumbing replaced. But, you know, it's an old city and stuff. Um, and my water, you know, I, we would look and it was it was not discolored for the majority of 2016. Uh, however, we had smells. We used to joke about guess the smell day because some days it smelled like fluorine or it burned your eyes. Other days, it smelled like dirt. And, and every once in a while, we would find um, that uh, it would smell like wet cardboard. She noticed her family began breaking out into rashes. The kids would have patches of really scaly skin on their arms and back. I, w- I kept getting it on my face and it would burn, especially that spot on my cheekbone. And it never seemed to heal. And then there was parts like on my chest and my back, like I guess where the water hit me the most, that I would get these just red burning and it felt like an acid burn. It felt like a chemical burn. And then other weird things started happening to her body as well. So I started having like bone pain. I'm like, why can I feel my bones? This is weird. And, you know, exhaustion, my hair falling out. So I'm a woman and guess what I chalked it up to? I was like, stress. I'm just stressed because I've got all this going on. And goodness me, I'm, I should, you know, I'm talking to my nutritionist about, you know, upping my vitamins because that's probably what this is. And um, that's what I've chalked it up as. Other people in Flint also began having health issues. It was something that the residents bonded over, sharing different ways to treat these mysterious ailments. Here's the creams I'm using, and here's what worked for my family. You got to get this kind of coconut oil and make sure you this, this, this. I mean, you know, so it's people giving each other advice and helping one another, which, of course, now I learned that's the backbone of Flint. And that's why we are still fighting and still here and still alive, because everybody's trying to help one another. 
When questions were brought to local and state officials, Melissa says there was always an answer. She says it got to the point where people were reluctant on coming forward with their stories. Nobody wanted to be that guy that was on TV complaining, right? So nobody was complaining. They're like, oh, you know, yeah, we've got a little hard water. We're going to try a softener. Oh, you know, it's no big deal. You know, we're going to, maybe I'm just taking too hot of showers. Literally the victim blaming, we were doing it to ourselves. We heard there were immediate changes to the water soon after the city changed its water source from the Detroit Water and Sewerage Department to the Flint River. I turned to Sarah Tallman. She's a senior lawyer with the Natural Resources Defense Council, also known as the NRDC. It's a not-profit environmental advocacy group based in the U.S. She told me part of the issue in Flint are lead pipes. There are plenty of other places with legacy lead pipes that are still used for water distribution, but water is treated so that when it runs through the pipes, contamination is less likely. If you imagine um, there's some pipes um, within water system, pipes and other fixtures that are either made of lead or that are made of other metals that can contain lead. Um, And water um, naturally corrodes metal. So as water rushes through pipes, there is some breaking off, flaking, dissolution of the lead into the pipes. And so these chemicals help build up a scale on the inside of the pipe, and that protective scale prevents lead from leaching from the pipe surface into the water. Um, And so those chemicals are often referred to as corrosion control chemicals. And so one of the ways that water systems can reduce the risk of lead contamination is to add these kind of chemicals to the water. So adding these chemicals definitely helps, but Sarah says it's definitely not a perfect solution. Really, the only way to truly eliminate lead from water supplies is to remove the lead pipes entirely. And that would include both the service lines, which are the pipes that go Um, under folks' front lawns that connect your home to the larger distribution mains in the middle of the street, Um, but also interior lead plumbing or lead fixtures that are sometimes in um, homes and bathrooms and kitchens. I'm going to jump in here for a moment. For centuries, lead pipes were used for water distribution. Lead was the preferred metal of choice for two reasons. It lasted longer than iron, and it was easier to bend. A journal published in the National Center for Biotechnology Information says its use began to scale in the 1800s. And by the 1900s, over 70% of U.S. cities with populations greater than 30,000 use lead water lines. But early on, concerns were raised about the use of lead pipes and lead poisoning. Both Canada and the U.S. have banned the use of lead pipes in new construction. Health Canada, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and the World Health Organization have come out and said there is no safe level of lead. And it's no longer used in things like paint and gasoline, tin cans, and toys. Prolonged exposure can have serious health impacts to your brain, nervous system, blood system, and kidneys. It's especially dangerous for children. But as you can imagine, replacing all lead pipes would require a lot of digging. And let's be honest here, it would cost a lot of money. 
So there are systems in place to monitor the level of lead in the water, and the U.S. federal government sets an actionable limit. Just to be clear, this isn't a safe level of lead because, remember, there's no such thing as a safe amount of lead in our water. Action level is a threshold. It means that if the level of lead exceeds this number, more water testing is needed. And if those levels are, in fact, higher than this limit, there would be a number of changes that would need to happen to reduce the level of lead. In 1991, the U.S. federal government set the action level to 15 parts per billion. The levels of individual samples that were seen in Flint were well beyond 15, but we were seeing levels in the hundreds and even in the thousands for individual homes. Sarah said samples from a few Flint homes were in the hundreds, some even in the thousands way higher than the action level the U.S. government set. But no one knew this, at least not yet. By the end of 2014, the city had issued several boil water advisories. Fecal chloroform bacteria was found in the water supply. General Motors even announced it would stop using Flint water because there were concerns that the water was corroding engine parts. During this time, Residents became angry with the lack of answers. There were many people that started standing up and they would they would actually take bottles of water, 16-ounce plastic bottles or even gallon jugs of water to City Hall, raise those jugs during council meetings and say, we got a problem. But no one was listening. They started taking their anger to the streets. There were marches in the city. There were there were marches in Lansing. The community continued to say, there's a problem here. We had community members going to the doctor for, for unusual rashes and the hair falling out and experiencing different kinds of illnesses that we, we couldn't even understand. I, I remember sitting in meetings with infectious disease doctors and they're saying, you know, these are some things that are not usually found in the city like in an urban city. And so it was it was really frustrating that no one would really listen. While this was all beginning, Melissa's lists of ailments also continued to grow. I wasn't even working very much because I couldn't stand on my feet very long. I ended up getting what was, we thought, bacterial pneumonia. Sick and frustrated, she says she would soon know what was causing her illness. On January 9th, 2015, Melissa got a pamphlet in the mail. It had the city of Flint logo on the outside and it was addressed to resident. So I'm holding this, this piece of paper and I open it and it's, it's a, just a regular eight and a half by 11, but it's got the tiniest print. And basically what it says is a notice of safe drinking water act violation. So I'm reading this information and it's basically saying since May, since look, right after the switch of 2014, our water had been, this was January, so basically through the past nine months, um, our water had been violation of the Safe Drinking Water Act, which of course, I didn't know what that was at the time, but of course it sounds bad, for disinfection byproducts, total trihalomethanes. And I'm like, that's messed up. So I, 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 I set it down on the table and I'm sitting here, I'm like, I don't, I don't know what I just read, but I know like, why do I have to talk to my doctor about my tap water? 
So I sit down to Google and I looked up what total trihalomethanes were and I looked up the fact that they used um, the, the, the study that they were referring to was decades old and that total trihalomethanes can cause cancer, neurological, gastrointestinal problems, rashes, like terrible headaches, nosebleeds, the things that we were having. I'm like, oh my God. If you're wondering, total trihalomethanes are compounds that are formed as a byproduct when treating water with too much chlorine. The water she used every single day for cooking, cleaning, and drinking was poisoning her. I'm angry. I am furious. And I'm like, and I, I've, you know, I've said to this day that, you know, poisoning means one thing. You know, at that time I was like 36, you know, 37. And I, you know, what, I, I, you know, I lived life. You know, I, I got my life. But you mess with my kids. Now, all of a sudden, it's all rushing back to me. I'm like, when my kids were out running around playing in the backyard, I brought them glasses of ice water because that's the way I was brought up, you know, a lemonade, ice water, not, you know, pops, things like that. And I'm just like, um, okay. I was angry. Turning to social media, Melissa found there were many others sharing similar concerns and joined them at a protest in January. Dozens of people demonstrated outside Michigan Governor Rick Snyder's home Monday. Many say his slow response to Flint's contaminated water is criminal. At first, Melissa didn't know what she was walking into. Up until this moment, she had been busy with her own life. Advocacy and protest weren't things she was familiar with. I was walking up and down the sidewalk and asking people. So now I'm finding out people of different ages, races, sexes, and different parts of town were having rashes hair loss, respiratory infections. Um, you know, people were having bladder infections, bladder cancer. I'm like, oh my goodness. You know, so all of a sudden, and then people's pets were getting sick. And I'm like, okay, all right. So it hit me, you know, I'm like, it's not just one area. It's just not my house. It's not just, you know, this and this. I was like, they are straight lying to us. This March on January 16th became a catalyst for Melissa and it would fuel her push for change. By early 2015, concerns around Flint's water quality spread. Detroit's Water and Sewerage Department offered to reconnect Flint to its water supply and waive the reconnection fee as residents' complaints flooded in. By March that year, City Council voted to reconnect Flint to Detroit's water system. But the emergency manager at the time, Gerald Ambrose, overruled the vote, saying Detroit's water is no safer than water from Flint and connecting to it would increase cost. While all this was happening, Melissa Mays took time to understand what was happening to the water and connected with water quality expert Robert Bocock, who has worked with environmentalist Aaron Brockovich. And she found out that the city's boil water advisories were actually doing more harm than good. He worked with me every day um, for a month in January to, to teach me all of this. He taught me how bad it is to boil the water, not just because we're, um, we're condensing the metals. And especially for, he said, you've got to talk to women who are making formula because they are serving up all these chemicals to, um, to their babies and their bodies are much smaller and all that stuff. But then, um, you know, he said also these total trihalomethanes, they're released into steam. You're absorbing them through your skin. You're inhaling them. They're doing the damage that way. So that's another problem. He was like, you, you know, the, the boiling the water, even though that's a Southern thing, you know, I mean, when water goes bad, you boil it. It was making it worse. So all of us who thought we were helping our families and protecting them were making it even worse by boiling it before, you know, serving it up. Melissa, along with other community groups like the Concerned Pastors for Social Action, 
decided to do more than just protest. They began collecting water samples from people living in Flint. So we started going around passing out water bottles and finding that um, that there was these high levels of lead. And then, of course, the city was like, oh, no, that's just one person's, you know, pipes. But Melissa was unsatisfied with that explanation. In the end, she helped collect over 250 samples and they were sent to Virginia Tech for testing. The results would show that city-wide lead levels had spiked. Another study was also done by Flint pediatrician Mona Hanna Atisha, and she was looking at blood lead levels in children living in the city and found that the proportion of kids with elevated blood lead levels had nearly doubled since the water supply switched in 2014. Illness was becoming more widespread. Flint saw a Legionnaire's outbreak between June 2014 and October 2015. Legionnaire's disease is a severe form of pneumonia caused by Legionella, a type of bacteria found in contaminated water. The outbreak was reported to be the third worst of its kind in U.S. history. At least 12 people died and hundreds of others were sick. Melissa, other residents, and local community groups contacted the NRDC, petitioned the EPA, and reached out to the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality. By mid-2015, officials began acknowledging the problem. In October, the state began testing water in schools, and it was reported that one school tested six times above the action level. That month, Governor Rick Snyder announced Flint would reconnect to Detroit for their water, and it would finally happen on October 16th, 2015. But even with the change in the water source, the problems were far from over. The NRDC, Melissa Mays, a group of local pastors and the ACLU came together and filed a lawsuit. I think it's important to mention there are different lawsuits that came out of the Flint water crisis. There's one lawsuit that saw a big financial settlement, but we'll get into that one in a bit. The one filed by the NRDC, which included Melissa and local pastors, sought no monetary compensation. Residents were asking for the government to start treating the water properly to minimize lead levels and for the removal of the lead service lines in the city. Here's Sarah Tallman. Remember, she's a senior lawyer for the NRDC. So NRDC got involved in summer of 2015. The ACLU of Michigan, that's the American Civil Liberties Union of Michigan, had done some really fantastic investigative reporting to try to understand what was going on with the water in Flint. Um, And they had contacted NRDC once they recognized that there might be Um, some water quality problems with the water and specifically some documents indicating that there may be a lead problem. Um, And because NRDC has some expertise with working with our federal, the United States federal environmental laws, um, they thought we can help assist um, the ACLU and other local partners who had already been sounding alarm bells about this issue in Flint since 2014. And the lawsuit that we worked on with our local partners was really about the failure to comply with these protections of federal law. Um, So it was shocking to us that this clear law was ignored um, in the context of Flint. 
Sarah said in their investigations, documents revealed water from the Flint River had not been monitored properly, and the city was not properly treating water with the necessary chemicals that would stop pipe corrosion and the leaching of lead from those pipes. So we went to Flint and we met with community members, the community groups that had already been working on this issue and organizing to try to create change and uh, stop this problem. Um, So we met with the groups to understand what their goals were. And we assessed uh, whether, in fact, there were violations of our federal laws, which there were, specifically the Safe Drinking Water Act. Um, And ultimately, we pursued legal action, um, working with some community groups. One is called Concerned Pastors for Social Action. We also worked with a resident named Melissa Mays and with the ACLU to pursue legal action to try to compel um, the water system to fix these problems, including treating the water correctly by adding these chemicals and monitoring the water appropriately so that they were testing to make sure they detected lead problems. And then, of course, we asked for the removal of all of the lead service lines in Flint. Um, So those were the remedies that we requested through our lawsuit. Uh, Before we brought that lawsuit, we also filed uh, what's called an emergency petition with the United States Environmental Protection Agency, which is the federal agency responsible for implementing the Safe Drinking Water Act. And we asked that agency to take emergency action to help provide relief to residents. Uh, But the government did not respond to our petition within a couple months of filing it. And so then we pursued additional action by going to court. The lawsuit was filed in January 2016, a year and a half after the city's water source was switched to the Flint River. By that March, there were some early wins. By that point, Flint, the Flint water crisis was in the national news, in the national spotlight. The governor had deployed the National Guard, but we were still hearing from our community partners that people did not have safe water to drink. They did not have bottled water. They did not have appropriate filters. And people were struggling to have access to the basic necessities of life, like water. Um, So we asked the court to provide emergency relief. And we ultimately won that motion. And we got an order requiring um, state officials and the city to immediately provide the people of Flint with safe drinking water. And so that could either take the form of bottled water delivery door to door or delivery of uh, faucet filters to help filter uh, tap water. A state of emergency was declared in Flint and Genesee County. Then President Barack Obama declared a federal emergency in Flint, which would free up federal funds to help support the city. Residents were told to use water filters and bottled water. And as Sarah said, Governor Rick Snyder also activated the National Guard to help distribute water and filters to Flint residents. In May 2016, Obama visited the city to speak with residents. But before he spoke, Snyder addressed the crowds. Let me begin. I understand why you're angry and frustrated. I want to come here today to apologize, to say, I'm sorry, and I will fix this. His apology was met with boos. It was the only time Snyder made a public appearance in front of Flint residents. This was the first time Obama also visited Flint because of the water. And when he was speaking with residents... Generally, I have not been doing stunts here, but, you know... He took a sip of the water. And 
this used uh, a filter. You know, the water around this table uh, you know, was plant water that was filtered. It took time, but by August 2016, water levels had begun to improve in some areas. But there were still issues related to damaged pipes. Water had corroded some of the pipes, and the only way it would be able to be fixed is by replacing the pipes. The lawsuit filed by community members, the ACLU, and the NRDC was settled in March 2017. Along with provisions around bottled water and faucet filter distribution and education, there were requirements around testing to make sure the city continued monitoring lead levels in water. Sarah said this all happened because residents stood up and demanded change. So our success in court would not have been possible without the hard work and the courage of Flint residents who were willing to stand up for themselves and tell their stories in court, these deeply personal stories about their struggles to get safe water to drink every day, something that many of us take for granted that we can just turn on our tap. And residents were willing to stand up in court and tell the judge that they were having difficulty finding and getting safe water to drink. And it was those stories that I think persuaded the court that immediate action was needed to protect residents and ensure that everyone in the community had access to safe water. Um, And so the success in our case is really a credit to the community um, whose courage and organizing and working together to advocate for themselves brought this crisis, this egregious crisis, to the attention of both the court and the country. There was one other huge gain that Sarah mentioned to me that came out of this settlement. A commitment of up to $97 million to replace uh, the lead and galvanized steel service lines in Flint on a fast timeline. All lead service lines in the city of Flint would be replaced. This had me thinking for a moment. Replacing all the lead service lines would be a costly and monumental task. How would they do that? With the help of AI. If you recall, Sarah mentioned there is no such thing as a safe amount of lead exposure. The only way to fully eliminate lead from the water is to remove any infrastructure containing lead. So that could be pipes, lead solder, and lead water meters. The use of lead in new construction was banned in Canada in the 1970s and the U.S. in the 1980s. But removing and replacing all that infrastructure would cost a lot of money and require a lot of digging. That's when Eric Schwartz entered the picture. He's a professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. He's also a data scientist. Like many people in the U.S. and Canada, he saw what was happening in Flint. In 2016, Eric and his colleague, Jake Abernathy, went to Flint to speak with people who were affected by the crisis. What struck me and and struck Jake back in 2016, during one of the earlier conversations we had with someone who was working in the city of Flint, when we really just asked what we thought would be kind of a, a, a beginning question um, was, well, how many homes actually have lead contamination? And we realized that that fundamental question was uncertain. Finding lead pipes in Flint wasn't going to be an easy task because the records that mapped out infrastructure in the city 
were old. They were out of date. What happens really here is once there is a change in the water source and change in water treatment, it interacts with the fact that there is lead and we don't exactly know which pipes are lead. So we know that lead is leaching off pipes and going into the drinking water. We don't know exactly at which homes and uh, at which pipes. And just because you can test the water to test for lead doesn't actually guarantee that if you don't find lead, that doesn't mean that you don't have a lead pipe. And in fact, even the opposite uh, uh, can sometimes uh, be true, that you can have a lead pipe, but not always detect lead in the water. He was compelled to help. Eric and his colleague Jake used data science to help residents in the city. And we realized, oh, there actually is some predictability here. Although it may seem as if it's random, that which homes have lead and which don't seem to be kind of scattered around, there actually are patterns that, that a machine learning model, statistical model uh, that, that is really flexible can actually start picking out those patterns. Using AI and machine learning, Eric and Jake created a predictive model that helped guide crews on areas that would have a higher likelihood of having lead pipes. With this idea, they went to the head of Flint's pipe replacement program. We pretty much gave him that pitch to say, we understand you're getting money from the state and federal government, at the time just state, to do this. We understand that there are more pipes probably than you have the money to replace. And so you want to be as efficient as possible to stretch these limited dollars as far as they can go to get as much lead out as quickly as possible so that people in Flint are living with lead for as little time as possible. It turned out this predictive model was very successful. Back then, when we were helping the city right at the outset, when there wasn't that much information, we were sending crews to areas where they were finding upwards of 80, 82% of their effort was actually finding lead. So for every 100 homes they visited, they were finding about a bit over 80 out of 100 had some lead. Uh, and that was exactly the goal. We, we wanted to get that number, that hit rate as high as it could be uh, and, and, and keep it there. And eventually, as there's fewer and fewer lead, uh, dips into the 60 percentiles. But by then, the percentage of lead in the community at remaining was minuscule, getting very small as, as it is currently, um, just a few hundred left to, to get out of the ground. In the last four years, nearly 10,000 pipes were replaced in Flint. Here's Ian Robinson, who works with Eric to explain. They have conducted more than 25,000 kind of inspections and excavations looking for pipes to replace. And by the estimates of the model, there are a couple hundred pipes that remain in the ground. And there are several factors for why pipes might remain in the ground. There was one big question that I had while I was working on this story. How could something like this ever happen in the first place? As I looked into it, there was one point that kept coming up. And it revolves around systemic racism and how it played a part in this crisis. Flint, Michigan, according to the latest U.S. Census, has a population that is 55% Black. I spoke with Yvonne Lewis about this. She said evidence of systemic racism in Flint could be seen when she first moved to the city, and the water crisis only shone a light on something that had existed for decades. 
I can remember sitting at the table and, and it was as if when the leadership was talking to us, it was almost without actually literally using these words, the look and the feel of the conversation was you people. Like, what is wrong with you people? We're giving you this. Why aren't you satisfied? We're reducing the land and copper rule. We've given you water. What else do you want? Well, what we want is equal and equitable rights. What we want is what every American wants. And and that is to have the absolute and ultimate right to help determine your own destiny and when the decisions and and to have your democracy uh, respected. Also, when I think about how we were treated, how we were, how information was communicated or not communicated, it, it just gave the sense that as a community that was classified as a poor community, because it's predominantly African-American, that you don't deserve to get quality information, that for a few dollars that would be saved, we could sacrifice the potential of you having quality water. We pay the highest water rates in the nation. How does that make sense? And yet we're not able to have control of that water. The Michigan Civil Rights Commission studied the role of systemic racism in the water crisis. They released a 130-page report in February 2017. The report says, while nothing was uncovered to suggest that anyone intended to poison the people of Flint, systemic racism did, in fact, play a role in the crisis. The report reads, quote, We're not suggesting that those making the decisions related to this crisis were racists or meant to treat Flint any differently because it's a community primarily made up by people of color. Rather, the disparate response is the result of systemic racism that was built into the foundation and growth of Flint, its industry, and the suburban area surrounding it. Would the Flint water crisis have been allowed to happen in Birmingham? Ann Arbor, or East Grand Rapids, we believe the answer is no, and that the vestiges of segregation and discrimination found in Flint made it a unique target. The lack of political clout left the residents with nowhere to turn, no way to have their voices heard, end quote. It says residents' concerns weren't taken seriously in the beginning. Flint residents testified there were no mechanisms to ensure they could be heard, that there was no way they were ever going to be listened to. It also brings up the emergency manager law. The commission recommended amending the law so that there is local representation and the ability to appeal an adverse decision. Yvonne said while it's clear that systemic racism played a role in the crisis, there was also this constant perception that it was racialized people who were the only people affected. It is frustrating because it does not give real clarity on what the challenge is, who's affected, and that then affects the decision-making process. You know, it's unfortunate to see or hear comments like, we've already given those people enough. We don't need to give them anymore. Who are those people? Those people are the ones that they see in the media that look like a certain way. Those people don't look like the persons who are making the decisions. So it's easy to dismiss, and I put in quotations, those people, when in fact, 
It's all people that are affected. The water, the river water, the water um, from the tap that flows through the pipes, it doesn't get to a white person's house and say, I'm not going in there. Or Hispanic person's house and say, oh yeah, this is a Hispanic house. I'm going to go in here. Water doesn't know any different. But when the story is told and it only looks like poor people, uneducated people, people of color are affected, it doesn't give clarity that everybody was affected. White, educated, three PhDs, and maybe even an MD. MD, you drank the water, you were equally affected. Remember I mentioned earlier that along with the lawsuit by the NRDC, there were other lawsuits that sought monetary compensation for Flint residents. In January this year, a U.S. district court judge granted preliminary approval for the proposed settlement of $641 million. It's reported to be the largest class action settlement in Michigan's history. It's a lot of money. I spoke with Melissa Mays about this. Remember, she's one of the leading community voices in addressing the water crisis. But she says it's still really just a drop in the bucket. The trauma of being forced to live in a toxic house. The trauma of not being able to move because who's gonna buy your water, your poison water house. The lack of access to free healthcare and mental health supports has left families in a precarious situation. The government, the people who did this to us have piecemealed. You know, we give our demands and they're like, well, yeah, this is, this is what you're asking for, but this is all we're gonna give you, which is pathetic. And they have never listened to us or made our recovery about us. They make these decisions about us without us, which is pretty typical. So we had to get involved. We had to become political. We had to get in the courts. And then with this lawsuit, nobody's going to get rich. There are other lawsuits, including one against the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, but those are still pending, as well as other potential settlements. Melissa says the money will help, but she's now working on fighting another battle. She says many people in Flint are low-income earners. They depend on housing and food vouchers, social security income. So the money that they get from the settlement could end up harming them if it's just enough to kick them off these state-run programs. So it's very simple. Just do not include, for state-run programs, do not include the, the, what little bit of money people are getting for justice as income or assets. Um, you know, when they're applying and keeping these programs so they can still eat and, pay, you know, have a place to live. Because, yeah, that's basically punishing us for getting a little bit of justice like we haven't been punished enough. Charges have been laid against several officials allegedly involved in the crisis. The most notable, former Governor Rick Snyder, was charged with willful neglect of duty. But there are others, two individuals who were former emergency managers for Flint, the former chief medical executive for the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, and several others. For Yvonne Lewis, although there has been some progress, she says there is one thing that won't be easily repaired. It's not an easy thing once trust is lost. It is really not an easy thing to build it back. So there's always some degree of skepticism. You know, we've got families, we've got children, we've got jobs, we've got health issues, we've got a host of issues, and these are layered on top of that. So in order to do that, in order to rebuild, regain, and work toward increasing, improving the trust issue, 
is to continue to have these conversations and people who are in leadership positions being willing to talk to community. As I close the chapter on the water crisis, I realize the story of Flint isn't unique. There are cities with aging lead infrastructure, and while lead might not be leaching into drinking water the same way it had been in Flint, experts say it time and time again. There is no safe level of lead in our water. And there are other issues as well. Communities in Canada right now that don't have access to clean drinking water. There are 54 long-term water advisories. The majority of those affect Indigenous populations. In the U.S., the professors who helped find lead pipes in Flint began hearing from other municipalities who also needed help. And now they've partnered up with more than 50 towns and cities across several states and Canada. But back in Flint, the water crisis didn't stop when the water supply changed or when the lead pipes were removed. And it wasn't over when the lawsuits were settled. That's because the residents will have to live with the legacy of the Flint water crisis. It's now part of their history. But Melissa Mays, who has fought so hard from the beginning, says the community won't be defined by it. We're not victims, we're fighters. Do not let anybody have the power over you because you do have the power and you make the decisions for your community. So the next time I read the words Flint, Michigan, I'm going to think of the community that came together to support each other. I'll remember the people who stood side by side as they marched in the streets together and screamed for the world's attention. They resisted and didn't take no for an answer. The people of Flint created meaningful change. And for that, they will be remembered and celebrated. Thank you for joining me this week. Global News What Happened To is written and produced by me, Erica Vela, with producer Dila Velezquez. Our audio producer is Rob Johnson. Thank you to Ron Fonger from MLive and a special thanks to Simon Osler, managing editor of Global News Toronto. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend about the show and help me share these stories by rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We are always looking for new stories. So if there's a new story you want us to revisit, you can reach me on Twitter at Erica Vela or email me at erica.vela at globalnews.ca. Thanks for listening. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.